This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, June 4th, 2022. Happy Wrath of Condage. <laughs> Wrath of Conde. Yeah. Uh, 40 years ago today, Wrath of Khan was released into theaters. So that's, you know, four decades, two generations, old enough for the movie to have grown up and have grandkids, which I guess technically it has, because then after the original series and the movies, you had the next generation and then now you have all the all the crap that's on Paramount Plus that I keep watching. Well, to belabor you know, the that, third generation always goes bad. To belabor that metaphor, yeah, Star Trek's getting a little long in the tooth, so all of its kids and grandkids end up being special needs children. Ooh. <laughs> Uh, and that's not even counting the original generation, uh, which was the best. Things have just kept on g going downhill since then. I don't want to take this. I don't uh, know. Season three of the original track is as bad as anything yet now yeah. at points. I mean, I, Spock's brain, Spock's brain would fit right in on streaming. Let's talk about it. <laughs> I, I, I have watched all this stuff. On the streaming, and I, I, I can. No. <laughs> no, I defer to your superior judgment. I have not watched more than thirty seconds of any of the stuff that's on streaming. So, yeah. Oh, uh, speaking of bad streaming, I'm going to segue right into what's been going on my week. Uh, we're, I think we're going to talk about this in depth, maybe when it finishes. But I did catch the first half of Stranger Things four. Uh, much to my surprise, yes, they made a fourth one. Um, and now I've got that Kate Bush song. It's I, I love the song, but Running Up That Hill now plays in my head every day of the week. So uh, if, you like, if you like to top your streaming with a little warmed over 80s nostalgia, uh, you, could, you could watch some of that. You guys want to know what I love about Stranger Things? What's that? What, I just want to talk I about grew up just in that set. era. When, the years it set, I was right in between those ages in rural Indiana with a group of friends all playing D&D &D with siblings. I mean, it could have been made in my hometown based on the years I was growing up. So it's, it's you know, the first season I, I did an intensive review episode by episode, editing everything. But with all that, with it looking like it could have been shot in my backyard growing up, I stopped after season one. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Kate Bush song, I thought for sure I had never heard before. So I went to check it out after it was on the show. Uh, and it turns out I had it in my library and I'd listen to it occasionally and just didn't realize it. Wow. But uh, after it appeared in the show, Kate Bush streams on like Pandora and iTunes and stuff went up 8,000%. <laughs> That's how it works. Wow. I just saw a news story on that today. 
Uh, if yeah, you want to know how young I am, I actually first time I heard it was uh, a cover by uh, a bunch of emo freaks called Placebo, and I thought, hmm, I kind of like this song. And then I found out that the original is so much better. Was that on like the OC or something? Oh, I'm not that young. Yeah, I just heard it on oh, alternative okay. radio. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, this but, yeah. week I. I've been spending getting ready for more reviews because, like, I've been watching the first two episodes of Kenobi. Uh, apparently, oh. the third one is when it goes to pieces, so I haven't seen that one yet. Sure, sure. Um, I watched the first three episodes of The Boys because they all came out on yesterday. Black. Oh, I was going to say on Friday, like that was some long time ago. <laughs> no, I watched them all yesterday. I sat down for three hours and watched the boys yesterday. Now I want to cry. <laughs> I'm sorry for you. The boys did nothing for me. And I, I do want to say nope. one quick thing about Stranger Things. Is it worth? No, no, it's not. Yeah. The I actually have a, a, a rule that after reading the first three issues of Preacher, I don't read anything or watch anything written by Garth Ennis. The boys' TV show is completely different than the Garth Ennis comic, um, but they are becoming more Ennis-like uh, the the longer the series has gone on. Mm. Um, so yeah, I've been. I I would have to say that just based on the first few minutes of the boys, uh, I would. Not I would not recommend people watch it in mixed company or if you're living at home with your parents because I know some of the people who watch the show are teenagers. <laughs> like if, if you're at home with your parents, don't watch this when they're around <laughs> or don't watch it at all. I should be saying, don't watch it at all. No, bad. If you're <laughs> under 18, don't watch it. Also, don't watch it because it's not good. There you go. That's it, people, anybody listening to this show knows whether they lean on the the Daddy Warpig side of things or the Dornal side of things. Uh, it is it is not Dornal viewing pleasure. No. Uh yeah, it's it's gotten way nastier than last season, and I don't know why. They like tripled down on the nastiness. And then I don't even want to describe the nastiness, even like elliptically describe nastiness. It's just really. It's nihilistic and unfun. No, guys, I mean, you just gave yes, me my but... next two rock album names. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's just. El it... <laughs> elliptical ahead, description. Finish. I've elliptical description and nihilistic and unfun. I'm there. Uh, it is dreadful. way more than nihilistic and unfun. I'm talking about not just goriness, but although there's plenty of that. Yeah, go watch a nice, clean horror movie like Hellraiser. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the thing that I, I hated turn about. Turn down the goriness. Hellraiser will do it for you. That's that's what I hated about uh, 
the boys. I, I I just I checked in for two episodes and that was it because um, Hellraiser at least pretends to be some kind of morality tale. Uh, it's it's like a traditional yeah. horror movie where the the people getting killed are the you know the sinners, and the boys was just violence for gratuitous vi- violence. Right. Um, it reminds me of a joke my brother and I had, like an inside joke, and now I'm sharing this inside joke with the world. Um, like, what if Superman punched a cow? Like, what would that look like? Uh, it even got to the point where there's like a scene where, uh, when we were young, we were watching an episode of Smallville, and of course they're on the Kent farm, and there's just a cow munching on grass right next to the fence <laughs> where, you know, Clark and Pa Kent are talking, and my brother just look at each other and l- start laughing. But now, now you know. If you watch the boys, you know what it looks like when Superman. <laughs> you know, this is something interesting because we're talking about superheroes today. I, I've had a theory a long time, a long time, that when you start looking at superheroes, especially the really powerful ones like Superman, over time you learn a great deal about the writer because of what they conceive of with these heroes, right? Because when you get right down to it, when you're writing Superman or one of those analogs, whether it's you know Apollo or Homelander or yeah, Sentry or any of the Superman analogs, the concept is, what do you think would happen if somebody had ultimate power and was not responsible for anyone else? And that ultimately boils down to, what would I do if I was answerable to nobody and could do whatever I wanted? So you have the original Superman writers who were, well, I'd fight crime and I would make sure that people were being treated justly and I would take care of, you know, immoral uh, mafia members. I'd fight super crime. Boom. You know, the Silver Age, I'd explore the universe and I'd learn all these secrets and I'd still be a friend of mankind, etc. And then you start getting the 80s and 90s and some of these writers come in and they're really just exposing themselves, their naked selves in a very real way. And you get down to people like Garth Ennis, who comic book after comic book after comic book, if I had no inhibitions and I could do whatever I wanted and I could get away with it, and then he writes it and I come to the conclusion, stay at least 100 meters from my kids, right? Um, And what we're really seeing with the boys is these writers are literally just sort of letting their id go. If I had unlimited power, what would I do if I wasn't moral? And it's telling us a great deal about the writers because the concept and origin of superheroes is very much tied up with the entire history of adventure literature, which starts in the eighth and ninth century, really, and becomes into a full novel form. And as early as the 13th century, 14, you know, 14 and 1500s, people were actively trading and buying books. You know, Don Quixote, did not appear out of vacuum. There was a rich tradition of people buying novels and reading novels and talking about novels. And Don Quixote is actually based on the existing love of adventure books when it was written, which is, you know, what, the 16th century? Or the 15th century? And throughout all this, the most important element of adventure fiction has always been heroism. If you had more power, you should be more moral, was always the message. I mean, Spider-Man says it most directly in the modern era. With great power comes great responsibility. And throughout these ages, a century of fiction, heroes and superheroes have existed one form or another. 
And with one or two exceptions until the very modern era, it was always, man, if you've got more power, you have more responsibility to do good and less excuses for being evil. And then, boom, the Iron Age came about, the, the, the dark age of uh, comic books in the 80s, and now it's the whole, well, if you had unlimited power, you'd be this psychopathic freak, and you'd be untrustworthy, and you'd be a criminal, and you'd kill people for fun. And, and it's an inversion of um, the entire concept of what an adventure fiction book is about and for. And I don't think, I don't think it's very fun, and I frankly don't think it's very healthy. Well, well and then you have things like, uh, is it Tom Taylor who wrote the recent, uh, uh, Tom King, Tom King, who's done so much to ruin Batman and ruin superheroes because his characters who are superheroes aren't even powerful anymore. They're just losers. It's like, well, if I was a superhero, taking your, you know, theory about them revealing themselves, I would be a completely self-hating loser whose wife or girlfriend browbeats him, uh, you know, and cuckolds him and uh, who hates himself and... Uh, is miserable and is very effeminate and can't make a decision and just yeah absolutely it's it's like you're reading the worst of uh, romance novels i was in the army for a long time and when you're out in the desert for weeks you end up reading whatever is there and the worst romance novels back in the day had the worst depictions of men and now that depiction has gone mainstream in um in comic books in particular and uh, and in a lot of the stuff that you see mainstream where they're ditherers they can't make decisions um they they have no ability to deal with conflict etc which is more of a you know it's a straw man and in, in, it, it was a straw man trope for poor writers on the very edge of publication 30 years ago and now it's kind of mainstream and i and i would argue it's because a lot of contemporary writers simply aren't that skilled at understanding people um you go out there in the world and the vast majority of people are good decent honorable people you look at any sort of disaster area right and here's an example rod serling loved the trope of man when there's an emergency people turn on each other the monsters come to maple street is probably his most prominent example Oh, yeah, everyone just turns on each other and it's violent because people are inherently uh, vicious and immoral. But in reality, when there's an emergency like 9-11 or the tsunamis in Asia or anything like that, what you actually see is the average person, person rushes around to help. They drop everything and they do their very best to help complete strangers. They, prejudice flies out the window. Racism, all that stuff just vanishes. Hey, let's save these people. And I'm not saying it doesn't come back, but I'm, what I'm saying is Writers like to pretend that their biases reflect reality when their biases just reflect themselves. So in reality, monsters come to Maple Street. Oh, the power's going out. Things are going weird. People have bonded together and said, I wonder what's going on. Let's make sure everyone's okay. But Sterling wanted it to be the opposite. And then you see the same thing again and again. Mainstream authors mistake them, their own prejudices for how people in general act. And I think that that's become much more prevalent in the last 30 years, I'd say, 
uh, and you're seeing a lot of you're seeing a lot of bad sort of takes on human nature and mainstream uh, entertainment, and it's most visible, I think, in superheroes because superheroes are written so big, it's so uh, over the top, and and every bit of their portrayal, it's just easy to see. Okay, so I'm gonna take the freebie here and <laughs> ask you about now now we brought you in because you've been working on your own superhero ideas so yeah. tell me what's tell me what's your take guest? on it <laughs> do you want to introduce our guest first uh, you know what i thought maybe uh you may realize that there might be some people listening later who are like who is this gentleman speaking with the dynamic duo uh Welcome back to the show, Rick Stump, uh, avid gamer, game designer, writer, uh, and so on. Uh, most, uh, in my mind, of course, most famous or infamous for uh, actually playing AD&D First Edition since as long as I've been alive. Um, yeah, this uh, August is the 43rd anniversary of my First Edition campaign in continual play for 43 years. Yeah, yeah so the game's older than I am. Yeah. Uh, rad. <laughs> uh, that's that, that's kind of an impressive feat, but uh, also really cool, and it sort of says a lot about uh, the game itself. But uh, yeah. anyway, we're we're here we're here to talk to you about you and your stuff. Welcome back to the show, Rick Stump. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it. I think this is my fourth time on your show. I believe so. Right. Yeah. If we if we count the uh, side quest, the the guide in of yeah. uh, game night. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, I, it's always a pleasure to be here. I love coming. I appreciate you guys uh, having me back. When I asked uh, asked for it, you guys were very, very kind and brought me back. But yes, um, as I like to say, uh, Champions is a new game to me. Um, I'm sort of green at it. I only started playing in 1985. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't have nearly the experience with what I do with AD&D. <clears throat> um, but uh, yeah, I've been working on it. I... I had the privilege of being introduced to, I, I purchased the Champions Rules, uh, a condensed version of the Champions Rules in 85, and then had the privilege to sit down with an experienced game master and play in 85 and 86 when I was in California with the Army. And then I've played uh, continuously since then, various various settings. I've also played Phase Rip and Heroes Unlimited and Her Villains Unlimited, um, Maze of... Uh, Mutants and Masterminds, I mean, pretty much all super world. But uh, DC Heroes, I always tend to come back to, to Champions. I think that it's a very flexible system. And uh, it's hard to believe it, but uh, almost 12 years ago, I started a new campaign that was nine years ago, named the Atlantaverse. And it started off with my oldest of my five sons and their friends, and quickly grew and has been growing ever since. And we now have, let's see, we have uh, one group in Atlanta, one in San Francisco, Seattle, uh, Toronto, Japan, deep space, and in the past, uh, Pulp Heroes, where it's set in the 1930s. So we've got six superhero groups, and we have two supervillain groups. So we have a total of eight active parties going on at once. Uh, it's been going on for a little over a dozen years, and it, it turned into a thing pretty rapidly. Um, and we've been keeping close notes. And not too long ago, I reached out to Hero Games. I've um, been a big fan of theirs for years, and they were kind enough to 
license uh, the Atlanta versus a setting. So I took about about a year, a little more than, got all my notes together, uh, got a bunch of uh, sample adventures, hooks, villains and heroes, put it together so a nice basis. And it's it's been out for a couple of months now. It's um, doing very well. It's getting well-reviewed. and But more importantly, it was a lot of fun to make. I had Artanon Studios was kind enough to do the cover and interior art. And I'm uh, quite pleased with that. It's just amazing and shows the unique setting of Atlanta off very well. If you're not from Atlanta and you look at the cover, you're going to say, what the, where is that? If you're from Atlanta, you're going to say, oh, wow, the King and Queen building. That's cool. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, I've been doing this awesome. for a long time. Yeah. I'm, I'm sharing this. I'm sharing the screen right now. Everybody uh, watching on YouTube can check this out. Uh, the cover's really cool. I'm glad you mentioned Ardenon. I, I might have guessed. Uh, <clears throat> it oh, looks like his that, style here. I see that, that, that dynamic style that shows action, the crisp. I mean, it's got to be Ardenon. Um, and they got those clean lines. It's very, it's the best of the good old school comic books there. But yeah, the background, that's the King and Queen building. Local icons here in Atlanta, the tallest skyscrapers are not inside a metropolitan area, the tallest suburban skyscrapers. Um, so they're a big deal around here. But you can see on the right, you've got one of the main heroes, uh, Silver Eagle. On the left, the one of the main supervillains, Oberst Sturm. On top, you have Phoenix, the super mage, another hero, and then at the bottom flying up, you have a major NPC, Amazing Man, and another PC hero, Sirius the Superdog. Serious, um, <laughs> the super dog. Love it. Well, my my oldest son, uh, there's a running gag. They keep trying to make, the concept is they keep trying to make heroes that will break the setting or break me as a game master. So he came in with this idea of a dog with energy powers who can fly and has force field and can shoot beams of light and is as smart as a human, but is still a dog, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, let's go. And it's it's just been a, an iconic character in the setting ever since. It's uh, Sirius the Superdog. <laughs> That's great. Uh, your, uh, your kids are my kind of players. Well, uh, they've actually really tried. I, the cosmic level guys are their best. They literally sat down and said, we're going to spend a month and make characters where their backstory is so weird you can't fit it into the setting. And instead, it's what inspired me to go out and, and have the setting license because it added so much fun to the setting. <laughs> oh, cool. You're answering all my questions before we even get to them. Awesome. Um, what, so just to repeat what you're saying or, or put it in my own words. So you did what I imagine a lot of Game Master's dreams are. You you had, Not only did you have a long-running game, but then you were able to write it up and license it so that other people could play in it. Absolutely. It's, you know, I've got this, I've got this philosophy and it was one of those things of until somebody asked me, and it's been about eight years now, somebody asked me, what's your philosophy on running games? Cause you run so many. I, uh, I've DM'd at something like 40 different game systems, more than five or six sessions. And, uh, I've got a handful that I come back to and run long-term. I mean, right now I've got a 43 year old AD and D first edition game. I've got a 16-year-old, no, 14-year-old, excuse me. No, 16-year-old second edition game. I've got a dozen-year-old champions game and on and on and on. And they said, well, do you have, and I, they forced me to think about it. And I eventually settled on what I call uh, the psychotronic concepts. And you can see, we call this 
Adventuring in the Psychotronic Universe is the subtitle for the Atlantaverse. Um, Atlantaverse playing in the Psychotronic Universe. And the psychotronic concepts that I use are, one, strict timekeeping for all gaming events. Two, verisimilitude. The world has to make sense internally, right? Three, status quo is always the enemy. Change has to go on and on and on. Four, everybody else has multiple characters because if you don't have multiple characters, strict timekeeping is going to ruin you. Five, characters can win or lose based on their own actions and choices. Superheroes can lose. You know, AD&D characters can get dead, on and on. Uh, six, players drive the action. I have an open world and the players decide what they're doing. And last but not least, genre is descriptive, not proscriptive. If it's in the Wild West and you come up with a reason why you, they could find an energy weapon, we'll see if it makes sense. And if it does in verisimilitude, it happens. And uh, those ideas all together, I, I believe, are at the core of why I have a fair number of campaigns that last a long time. Um, and we, and and we're gonna we're gonna use that. I hope you don't mind. We're gonna learn as much as we can from you because, uh, you know, as game designers and players and game masters ourselves, like that's that's a pretty cool feat. Well, I appreciate yeah. that. You know, it, I, I my running gag here at home is I've been playing cribbage for fifty for uh, forty five years. Nobody's ever asked me about my cribbage game, but but I understand there is a difference. Um, but I think that. The other side of that coin is not only do those seven things make it, in my opinion, easy to run a long campaign, it makes it easy to document it and for other people to emulate it. Um, we uh, did a whole episode on that. Uh, Say that again, Danny? Uh, we did a whole episode on... We did. We did. And it was very good, and I really enjoyed it, but... But it also makes it easier for you to capture what your setting is like and share it with others. Um, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. I know a lot of really good settings that I've been in, and it's almost impossible to capture and share. And I think that, in, in particular, verisimilitude makes it much easier to share your creations with other people because they can sense and understand the internal logic of the world. Uh, and that's exportable. So... The Atlantaverse, I think, uh, was one of my more conscious efforts to make something that was shareable. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've had a lot of really good feedback from people, uh, some of the early people with the books. And not too long ago, I, I was talking with Alexander McCreese, the creator of Ascendant and Adventure Conquer King. And um, you know, one of the great things about a good setting is it can be system agnostic. You can potentially use Greyhawk with Rollmaster or with Palladium, or uh, you can easily use the Atlantaverse with any other superhero game. It's relatively simple to switch over, but that's because of that internal consistency and logic, in my opinion. Uh, you're saying as long as you have sort of a, a method or a toolkit for conversion, like or or at least a mental model of okay, well, yeah. in Champions, a guy who has like their you know energy beam that's X dice is going to be modeled as a second level magic spell or something like that exactly right that'd be relatively easy to do as a matter of fact one thing that alex and i have talked about when i was talking with mccrease is ascendant uses logarithmic math in the background and oddly enough most of champions a lot of champions i should say uses logarithmic math in the background and so does dc heroes 
Um, so it's surprisingly easy to convert characters between DC heroes to champions to ascend it in, in any direction. Um, and <clears throat> once you get an idea of, well, Superman's roughly this many points and champions are this many points in ascendant, it's relatively easy to say, okay, what would Thor look like, even though he may be in phase rip and not DC heroes or champions? So it's, you know, with a little bit of experience in various systems, it's pretty easy. It's just like you could take the official setting for Palladium fantasy role-playing game with the Old Kingdom and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and translate it to D&D really smoothly if you just know both systems. You just have to translate men-at-arms into fighters, you know, simple stuff like that. Uh, before we move on, we've got some questions for the chat, and, and we're going to get to those in a second. Sure. Before we move on, I, I want to point out here in the in the browser window, uh, so you said that that's on sale right now. You can get it in a number of places. You can get it at herogames.com, so, and, and we'll repeat that again at the, at the end of the show. For anybody listening um, away from YouTube, just go to herogames.com. You can find Atlantaverse, or you can just web search for it. Right. Uh, uh, you got a PDF, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, depending on where you order it from, you can order a hardcover, at least from Barnes & Noble. You get it from Barnes & Noble, you get it from Lulu, and I do believe that if the hardcover is not available from Amazon now, it will be in a month. And uh, I mentioned this online, Hero Games has been amazing. Um, very approachable, very flexible. They've been very kind, um, ton of help. When I got everything done, they edit, did an edit for me, and had, they've actually gave some of the best editing feedback I've gotten from any source ever. It was just incredible, help, incredibly helpful. Um, and then they got everything up for sale there, Barnes and all these places in a day. Just amazing. And they've also approved, I have five more books coming that are licensed, where I'm adding five more things from the Atlantaverse through Hero Games in the next couple of years. Love it. Very excited. Uh, it sounds like an amazing partner. I I've worked with a lot of people over the over the years, and I'd have to say of the game companies I've worked with, Hero Games has been the best, bar none. Just wonderful to work with. Uh, I had no idea. I'm not a Hero Games player, not a Champions player, um, but yeah, that's unheard of. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, to get that kind of support, I got a question, get an answer in an hour from a senior partner. You know, hey, here's this stuff. Three days. Here's our editing feedback. Crisp editing feedback. Amazing stuff. Just a joy to work with. I can't say enough good things about Hero Games. Literally. Oh, that's that's amazing. Uh, especially with the bad rep other game systems have. The only other, uh, the only other game uh, company that comes close that I've heard from is Steve Jackson Games. And that's because Steve Jackson personally still is Steve right. Jackson Games. Steve Jackson is a legend, and he's going to stay that way for a long, long time. I've heard that. And I've heard Autark, uh, who does ACKS, uh, McCree's. I've heard they're very good, too. And I'm hoping, uh, this is a little early, I'm hoping that Alex will allow me to, and this is not, not even asked, let alone confirmed, I'm hoping to make a version of Atlantaverse that is compatible with Ascendant. Of course. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, you, you two would be like peanut butter and chocolate. He, I, I've read his book, Arbiter of, of Worlds, uh, which I, I do recommend. Yeah, and, and you guys definitely have the same philosophy for gaming. Yeah, it was a joy to talk to him the other day. It was me me and he and my oldest son uh, had a three-way conversation. It was a pure joy. Yeah. Cool. 
So uh, let's let's talk about the chat. Chat has a couple of really good questions. Sure. Uh, go, going back to uh, the games that you've run forever. Let's go all the way back. Matthew Martin asks, uh, what kinds of games do first edition AD&D, second edition AD&D, and Fantasy Hero lend themselves to? And I'm going to insert respectively. That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, based upon my two longest games, I find that for me, and this may be my personality and my style of writing, running things, First edition is really, really good at a sort of lower-end fantasy uh, game where you're focused on long-term play. Uh, it's best if you've got people that expect to be playing for years, um, that you want a slow growth. You start off with low magic and low power and slowly build up to the domain level. And then once you get to the domain level, you just keep going and going and going. Um Second edition seems to be much more of a mid-level fantasy where uh, you've progressed faster, you get to domain level faster, and you stay with domain play less long, right? And then based on Fantasy Hero, which one of my sons, uh, Nick, right now is running a Fantasy Hero campaign, that is, really seems to be more of a high fantasy you know, everyone has a unicorn. You can teleport between planets. Uh, you know, Atlantean hypermagic. That seems to be really good at the high fantasy, um, giant concept world spanning games uh, that are a ton of fun where everybody's basically a superhero, but it's a fantasy setting. Again, that's my personal take. Uh, and it means it can be really difficult. Like I, I the Monty Hall syndrome where people want to get to high level domain play is really, really a problem in first edition. I find that a lot of people want to skip the five to six years it takes you to get to domain play and just start right away. Uh, and I think they'd be better served by second edition or fantasy hero that. Um, whereas fantasy hero I've seen has a tendency to really get over the top really fast. Um, but a good game master can keep it on board for a long time. So that's, that's my personal opinion on those three. Oh, that's that's interesting. I think uh, recently we've we've been experiencing a lot of first edition D, uh, AD and D uh, that Warpig has been playing, and just sure. sort of like that rings true to our experiences. Well, you know, uh, I the, say, Jeffrey Johnson, who's an old friend of mine, Daddy Warpig. A lot of guys are saying, "Hey, play first edition, play AD and D first edition." As close to rules as written, and it really is just warms my heart. It's my favorite game of all time. I've been encouraging people. I've long, I've been saying for 20 years, if you play AD&D first edition as close to raw as you can, you're going to really learn a lot about game design. Um, and I've seen some great stuff come out of that. But it's, I think, like you said, you're seeing some of that. It, there are, in my opinion, there are three emotional realizations that every game master makes. And I don't care what system it is. And this isn't about mechanics, it's emotional. The f and this is in no particular order. One, some of the things that you think are going to challenge and frighten the players never will. Mm -hmm. Two, some of the things that you think your players are going to find boring and easy are going to confound them and frighten them. Right? Yeah. Three, getting to a mature campaign always takes longer than you want. And how you deal with those uh, and grow as a game master is really important to what system is best for you. If, if you understand that, oh, well, I'm going to have this 
my personal favorite is there was a very, very popular vampire-based module for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, something loft. I'm not gonna go into the details. Um, and for years it was touted as terrifying and intimidating, and the vampires really scary. And I do a thing once a year where I run a classic module for my family. And when I did it, I really played up the gothic elements. My kids thought it was a bad, laughable MST3K moment, right? They thought everything was laughable. They thought it was ridiculous. They thought it was over the top. They thought it was melodramatic. They speed ran the thing and, and went through the entire module, including killing the vampire in five hours. <laughs> Laughing the whole way. Oh, things are bad. Oh, I'm really melodramatic. Really oh, you know, and it was, you know, they, they just didn't buy it. At the same time, I did another module, and they spent four hours terrified of a fire giant at the end of the hall. And then found out it was an illusion after literally four hours of dithering and how do we do this, et cetera, et cetera. So figuring out what your players are going to be intimidated by and what they're not going to be intimidated by is really tough. Uh, but the last one is getting to a mature campaign always takes longer than you want. How you deal with that is is really determines what system's best for you, in my opinion. So my two cents. Interesting. Interesting take on it. I think um, uh, what's what's fascinating me is that um, the the pro SR guys uh, mm. like Jeffro, they have uh, they have taken those shortcuts to set up a game, and in in the sense of a an experiment, like an academic experiment. Well, yeah, I, I know that Jeffrey was doing a lot of research, and I think that whether well, he's now this is my opinion. I haven't asked about this directly. I think that he saw off patrons simply because he's doing research, and he wanted to see what the domain game looked like. And mm -hmm. if you're going to do that by the book, it's you've got three to seven years, you know. And if you're doing research, you don't have time for that. So slap some guys in there. Um, put them up in a domain right away. See how that works. Yeah, that's perfectly legit. If you want, if you're doing research, you want to see how it goes and and find out how it works and what's the strengths and what the weaknesses are. It's not it's not how it is in the books, and that's okay. And um, and of course, faction play is old, and people love faction play, so I'm sure that it's really enjoyable, and I'm sure they've learned a lot. But yeah, I wouldn't call what the Bro SR is doing Monty Hall. I'd say what they're doing is trying to research on how AD&D first edition works best. And I think there is a difference there. Um, but yeah, if you want to, if you want to play AD&D first edition as close to by the book as you can, it's going to be three to seven years before you have somebody hit domain level. But I'm telling you right now, it's worth it. <laughs> uh, that sounds fantastic. Uh, I have a, I have a worry about, okay, where do we find new players? And I know we're going down a rabbit hole here. Like, oh, sure. where do you find new, new players uh, if you don't have an established game group? Uh, how do you start on AD&D? Um, my oldest, I wish I'd had my oldest son here for this. Uh, he has done this twice. Once at our friendly neighborhood uh, game store, um, went in. With just the first edition books during one of the what is it i can't remember it's like adventures league events for fifth edition oh yeah yeah and he just told the shop hey, i'm going to be in here in the corner and i'm looking for people for first edition 
and he very quickly had a group of six people. And, wow. and they lasted until he got a new job and the schedule changed. So a fair amount of time, like 18 months. And then at another time, he simply put out amongst his circle of friends, all in their mid-20s, hey, I'm going to start AD&D First Edition. And it was almost exclusively never played before. Like, oh, I'd love to play. So I, I remember being in my 20s, I never had a problem getting new players. The tough part was when I was in my mid-30s with a couple of little kids. Um, and yeah. based, on, based on what Jack and... Uh, Jack and Sam, two of my boys are out and grown and living their lives, are saying it's still pretty easy to recruit amongst 20 year olds. Um, so that's good to hear. That's pretty good. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to go find some 20 year olds then. Listen, that was a that was a personal question for me because uh, yeah. you know uh it's it's tough. Yeah, it's tough to find players, and especially yeah, if you um I I think and I love talking about the whole domain game and faction play and everything like that. Uh, you can simulate faction play with something like B2 Keep on the Borderlands. Yep. But if you, if you, and I, I hear what you're saying about taking the time to get a naturally mature game. But you, when you, if you're thinking of a of a domain game in AD and D, you have to have a basic sketch of your game. Mm -hmm. worked out and a lot of people become obsessed with so-called world building well you're, and, you're, you're skipping ahead what i was going to say you're absolutely correct um when i i've actually got a, a graphic i should have sent it to you it's my current map of seaward versus the seaward map i started with uh, when i started building seaward which is my 43 year old campaign i had a town on a river on a coast Across the river was the Tower of the Good Wizard where you could learn spells. And then 20 miles away was the Pirates. That was it. This map was 25 miles north to south, 15 miles east to west, and five miles east-west was ocean. Nothing. From that, it has grown to be the main map is about 180 miles east-west, 90 miles north-south. The Kingdom of Seaward now has um four major cities it's got five big neighbors etc but when you look at it all that growth was player driven the hmm. city of eastport which is a major rival that was a player who domained and was mad at the npc king so he says oh yeah i'm gonna make my own kingdom with, with blackjack and hookers right um and then you've got timberlake which is a guy who domained you've got adrian a wizard that domained you've got a cull a wizard that domained You've got the four counties, various demi-humans that domained. Uh, on and on and on. You've got Wyvern Keeve, a guy that domained. And for, for all that, for every guy that has a domain that's still in the map as an NPC, you had two that tried to domain and failed for some reason or other. So I'd say 80% of the huge growth of my campaign was player-driven. And it was as the players get, got higher level, I'm like, where am I going to go build my domain and doing it, everything else. So the organic growth, my foundation, when I started as a, as a, an 11, excuse me, it was my 12th birthday as when the weekend after my 12th birthday is when I started this. When I started, it was, here's a town with a, a king and a wizard and some pirates. That's what I started with. I didn't need a ton of world building. It was the initial 
interaction with the players of what's over here, what's over there, that led to this organic world building that is now this large, this kingdom the size of, I want to say, I think it's the size of Israel or something crazy like that, with a population of almost a million people. And 90% of that was the players doing it as they went up in level from first and kept growing and establishing domains and failing to establish domains. And to be honest with you, um, I'd like to think the Blackstone system that I set up my second campaign, I developed the entire world and all the governments, all the economics and stuff. I was in my, you know, forties when I did that. I was, I think I was 40 years old, 39, 40 years old when I did that. And I already had a lot of experience. I could have done that as well when I started. And a lot of what I learned watching 20 or 30 players get to the main level is what really taught me how to do world building. So there you have it. Well, and, and, and I want to point out that if, if anybody's not familiar with AD&D and you're still listening to this, I, I don't know why. I don't know how you could be here and not know, but AD&D has lots of procedural uh, systems for doing that expansion. Right. Uh, in, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, which leads to the Simon Hogwood's question. Uh, you mentioned a couple of players failing the domain game. What does that mean? I, I think that the most, uh, I think I'll give you two examples of failing domain game. Um, one of them was my good friend, George. Uh, and I th- believe that George is listening. So George, if you're listening, uh, well, I can't wait to talk to you on Father's Day. Uh, he tried to strike out into the Tregalen Forest and establish a domain. He did not negotiate with the local Wood Elves first. Uh, he just started building a fortress using um, magic and a bunch of soldiers he brought in. Ended up creating a lot of strife with the local elves. And in the end, he lost a war and ha- was driven away from his attempt at a domain uh, as a 10th level fighter. Uh, lost most of his followers in the, in the siege that, he, that collapsed. Rode off. Uh, with his handful of henchmen and the surviving troops, went south and actually became a bandit lord um, after that. And we uh, and we were joking at the time, this was going to be 1984. That's where all those ninth level, 10th level bandit, bandits come from. They're failed domain <laughs> guys, right? That was probably the most, the most interesting one. He actually ticked off the locals so bad they drove him out. Wow. Uh, the other one was the first attempt to make a domain at Wyvern Rock, which is now Wyvern Keep. Um, and this is kind of infamous on my Discord, where I've talked about this a couple times. The player was really excited about getting a keep. He really wanted as much intrigue and espionage and political mumbo-jumbo as possible. He was really fired up for it. So he gets in, he builds his keep, he moves in, he's on the very cutting edge of the frontier. And I've got some politics going on, this and that. And he literally wrote me a physical letter um, complaining that there was not enough spy intrigue, skullduggery, Byzantine, Borgia-style politics. And I took him seriously. Uh, so I ramped up the level of, you know, skullduggery and James Bond-level stuff, et cetera. And after about nine more months of play he abandoned the fortress and and fled um because he felt that he could not defeat the forces arrayed against him and was branded a coward by the king and outlawed and fled south over the treacherous road and became another bandit lord oh wow 
so I would say those are the two the two most uh, glaring examples. But uh, there was another one. They literally were so far from civilization they could not get enough random encounters that matched their alignment to build up a population, and they ran out of money. And that's why off in the wilderness you're going to find this Mott and Bailey castle that's abandoned. They they tried to level, and they literally over the course of two game years did not get enough random encounters that matched their alignment for them to get settlers, and they just went broke and had to go back home. So there you go. Wow. Like you said, there's a lot of procedures in the game on how this works. <clears throat> we followed them and you're not guaranteed to make it work. And, not- and that's, that's one thing that um, I discovered uh, to sort of support your point. I discovered when uh, I sat down with my brother to do a, a, to kickstart a domain because I wanted to personally test those rules out. Sure. Uh, and it like possibly it, yeah, you learn so much when you do that. You learn so much, and and uh, and it really rings true with what you said about you know the best way to do it is to actually play and have them get there because we did uh, two things. You know, as we started, I said, okay, I'm gonna you know we're gonna roll up a handful of henchmen and we're gonna hand wave money away like i'm not i'm not giving you a budget or anything like that like we're yeah. we're we're going to assume that we're trying to kickstart a campaign and we're just going to see how the procedure works so we're just going to say you have enough money because the rules make it really easy to roll up a level nine fighter it, yeah very easy and they it, it is not easy to simulate the amount of wealth that that fighter might have when he's put together a war chest or a a a fund for a castle fund, right? right. Um, there's who's to say how many mercenary companies he's met and hired over the years, right? So there's a lot of stuff that you can't simulate. So we had to start from the assumption that this character would eventually succeed and create this keep because a we were trying out the system and b mm. I wanted to use it as a baseline for a game. And that's exactly that's perfectly reasonable, but you're actually touching on one of the reasons that it ends up being better organic or over time. There are so many variables. AD and D first edition is underappreciated about how much Gary anticipated you'd struggle with if you played by the rules. And one of the reasons the book is so dense is it's also a manual about game design. But when it comes to domain, you read that domain stuff and he basically is warning you, you're probably going to fail. And it's probably going to be about money over and over again if you're paying attention to how he writes it. And like you said, if you're doing it, quote unquote, artificially, you've got to hand wave the cash because it's it's such a complex thing in game. Yeah, it has to be done. Uh, But really cool system nonetheless. And just spending an, an afternoon with a friend building a domain it's oh. genuinely fun. And it's a you wonderful really... mini game. Spending a couple days just oh. you know, doing the, the, the patrols and the wandering monster encounters and on and on and on. It's incredible stuff. Yeah. Well, it, what's really exciting is my wife, who is now my most consistent player of all time. Uh, this March was marked her 31st year of playing in Seaward. Um, she's about to have her third character domain inside the campaign. And we're all very anticipatory. This is going to be a lot of fun. That's that's really sweet. Yeah. 
I love that. I, I want to let's go back to superheroes because that's absolutely that that's that's where you're at right now. And I don't mean to dominate DW. Jump in if you have any other questions. Well, before we do that, though, I did want to warn you guys. We mentioned this earlier. Father's Day is coming up, and we're scheduling 14 hours of AD&D First Edition over the three days of the Father's Day weekend. <laughs> so there's going to be a huge play report coming out in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's fantastic. Where do we get your play reports? I do my play reports on my blog, uh, which is Don't Split the Party. Uh, it's harbingergames.blogspot.com. And I've got a very brief podcast I do. I'm not like you guys. I'm not a professional. My podcast average 10 minutes. And I sometimes do play reports there verbally, too. Awesome. Um, where the concept of patrons originally sprung up um, and got adopted into the BroSR is from Chanticleer. Um, oh, from a, a, Twitter. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, see, I'm friends I believe... with the BroSR, but as Jeffro and I will tell you right away, I'm not BroSR, you know, I'm not using any of their house rules, uh, any of other stuff, I'm just pals with almost everybody in it, yeah. But I, mean, I know Chandler, um, and I believe he was inspired by watching, um, the Secrets of Blackmore documentary. Um, Where are they talking about? Yeah, they're talking about Dave Wesley. And um, and how Blackmore got started, sure. Um, and they also talk about the Bronstein game, which Dave Wesley created. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, well, the thing is, is Bronstein. Uh, Bronstein is weird uh, because originally uh, the first one was you're playing like the mayor and the city guard and stuff in a town, and then your decision had impacts on the war game that happened later. And Wesley has run it. Oh my gosh, how many times has he run variants that game? Now he does cons, and you can still get in and play every now and then. I myself once got to play Brownstein with Luke Pulsifer, who had a copy of some of the rules. And it's a, it's an interesting game. It's very, you know, it led straight to Arneson going from. Well, if I can do that, I can play a couple of hussars off on their own too. Why can't I do that with a wizard? to why can't we just focus on what these low-level guys are doing? And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that Brownstein originally was much more, you're, you're dealing with, like, peasants instead of generals. Um, <clears throat> and it led to that. But, yeah, faction play has been around a long time. I think that uh, Chana Clear reading that had that. I, I've always wondered, whoever thought that up, did they used to play Hyborian War? The old turn-based, male-based game where you were, like, in the world of Conan and you're playing like Aquilonia or a uh, new media or one of the other nations and you would turn in your notes every week and you send off your mail orders and <clears throat> you know, do turn-based faction play. I've always wondered if that inspired that. Um, and yeah, but you know, like I said, I've always assumed, um, although I've never directly asked that the patron play came out because I know that Jeff was doing some intense play testing. And if you're doing playtesting, you don't have time to wait the years and years and years to let that happen naturally. I've just always assumed that's what was going on. Um, so when you're looking at how that, how the Bronstein worked, you had 
certain events that happened because they were player driven. Yeah. Like yeah, the source of uh, player driven and RPGs is definitely from there. Where uh uh you know they had an actual duel at one point between the leaders of the students and the leader of the uh soldiers who arrived in town. And um it was Dave Arneson who was the leader of the students and it was, you know, some other player who's the leader of the soldiers and Arneson got slaughtered like almost instantly. And then they relate this in the secrets of Blackmore film. Oh yeah. Uh, love the film. Griff did a great job. Yeah. I asked about this in the, uh, in the bro I saw and everybody was like, well, yeah, you, in order, if you want to learn about Brownstein, you need to go watch Secrets of Blackmore. And I was kind of miffed. I'm like, isn't there anything I can read? Um, and somebody gave me a couple links, but I didn't really get much from the links. And so finally, oh, really? you know down. what? I, I will. This is really funny. Dave Wesley and I were talking this week, right? This very week about Braunstein. And I'm trying to get some physical copies of some of his older works off of him. But I can, I can. I own two because I paid for them, but I own two copies of Barons of Braunstein, which is the only licensed version of his rules. I'll send you one of my copies. Um, oh, that would be great. Yeah. Um, old house. But, rules. Uh, old house. I think it's old house rules. Did that. They licensed it from Wesley and printed it. Heck, I think you can get it from RPG. Now it's just a couple bucks as a PDF. But it's a licensed version of the rules. Yeah, I, I've heck, I've have how long have I owned that? I've owned that since it came out. I think 2014. I've had that almost uh, eight years. I think it was 2014 that came out. Yeah, I remember reading about it. I swear on Google Plus just before it went down. Um, but uh, for for anybody listening who's uh, who is interested in Bronstein, which is the again the immediate predecessor. To Blackmore, which became Dungeons and Dragons, um, and then the inspiration for patron play in the Bro SR. Um, I really would recommend, uh, as far as learning what it was like to play and what the impetus behind the design was and how the game developed, really Absolutely. go watch The Secrets of Blackmore. I actually ended up buying it. Um, Yep. I have the digital copy uh, of DVD for the archives. Like half the guys in my Discord do that. It's a wonderful thing. And if you really, and again, if you, if you really want to, and this is my personal opinion, if you really want to understand the basics of game design, read the Dungeon Master's Guide for first edition. And if you want to understand where those ideas came from, read the OD&D books, read Brownstein, and watch Secrets of Blackmore. Right? So... When they were playing Brownstein, a lot of the events were player-generated. The players decided sure. to do things. In fact, most of the game was player-driven, uh, and that was the secret to making it a fun game. That was the secret to making it a compelling game. Yeah, I understand. At the time, there was at the time it was coming for the war game um, situation, and there was no such thing as a game master-driven anything. You know, in the war game society, you you had game A, you had side A and side B, maybe side C, 
and they're moving their troops around, and you might have a referee to do things like, no, that's six inches. No, that's 6.1, and that's all a referee could do. So coming out of that milieu, uh, a culture that's almost been lost, the idea of anything other than player-driven didn't exist, right? Even in Brownstein, the referee was just there to, you know, okay, I've got a difference about of opinion about the rules, and that's all he could do. Um, and that it was the very basic concept baked into early D&D. It was otherwise, I, and I don't know where this vanished. Uh, I've talked to, I've talked about this for years. When I started playing, I started playing OD&D in 77. And then I switched to AD&D in 79. And I was a very young man when I learned how to play. And everybody who taught me came from the wargaming community. And the idea that the game master would have a plot that you had to fulfill never crossed anybody's mind, right? Because in the war games, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wheel my guys right. Well, that's not what's in the plot. There's nobody to say that, right? There's nobody to say, well, in order for the princess to be saved, you have to have the knight die at this river crossing. Didn't it? Just, what? What do you do? So in early D&D, when I was learning and when I was first playing and what I absorbed, there was no such thing as anything but player-driven action. And it was so baked into my worldview that I was on, I was blogging on Google Plus like two or three years before I realized there were people that didn't know that was possible, let alone that that was the default play. So in in terms of playing Brownstein and then connecting that with patron play, um, which is basically you know, NPC domain play. It's not yeah. the player character domain play. It's NPC domain play. Um, one of the points that I think up until now, the Bro SR has missed um, is in Brownstein, there were player actions and then there were some GM determined actions. Like events that the like GM ha yeah. happened that weren't necessarily they were just part of the scenario that were outside of you know any so everybody's control like that were noon, yeah on noon of the third day the austrian troops will arrive stuff like that yeah right or you know uh in other scenarios it may be uh, they were talking about Brownstone, which was a Western version of it that apparently never went off well. Um, but you could say, okay, in Brownstone, there's going to be uh, a wagon train uh, that's attacked by Indians outside of town. And, right. yep, yep. you know, that affects everybody. So one of the things I think, and I was just thinking about this a uh, week and a half ago or so, uh, and I mentioned it in a thread, um, but I hadn't gotten around to talking about this on Twitter yet, is that I think one of the reasons that the domain play right now isn't quite working, and it's even connected with your story about 
the spies is that there are no DM initiated events that occur for there to be challenges in this NPC domain play, save for wandering monster checks. And I see what you're saying. That's interesting. I, I think there should be, you know, trouble among the ranks. Or I, I see what you're saying that there's a difference between because when you're in the domain, when you're a player character, whether you're domain or not, you're always basically getting, and there's no other way of putting this, messed with by the DM one way or another. You right. either get a upkeep or there's you're getting attacked by a rival group. And again, this is foreign to me because I've never used patrons and I doubt that I ever will. But if you've got NPC groups that are doing stuff amongst themselves and the DM's not messing with them, they're kind of rogue agents where they're almost... Yeah, I, I don't... I. I I don't know how it would be radically different. You'd be like, you've got one group that's directly interacting with the dungeon master this and being impeded by the DM, but also impeded by the NPC patrons, but the patrons can't be impeded by the low level players, but the DM's not impeding them. And that's just based on what you're saying. That would be an interesting dynamic. I'd like to know more. I know that there's a, some pretty good play reports from the bro SR. I'm going to, after this, I'm going to have to go look at that and see what that's like, because that sounds like a very different dynamic than Brownstein, Brownstein or uh, D&D. I, I actually, I've been saying for a long time, I think the Bro SR has found sort of a new thing, a new game. Uh, it looks like tremendous fun, and I know they're learning a lot about games and game design from it. Um, I'm going to have to look at that more now. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks, uh, Daddy. That's a I would have never known that because, you know, I'm, I'm very busy on my own with my own stuff, but I'll see if I can get some game reports in. Yeah. So I, I think that one of the things that um, Broasar might want to experiment with is in the domain or the patron level play is having the DM take the initiative somewhat in presenting, you know, difficulties other than just allowing other NPCs to present difficulties uh, that they have to deal with. Um, so other than player-generated activities, there need to be DM-generated activities too. And I'm not saying all the time. I'm not saying every you know day of game time or every week of game time, but this is a role-playing game. DM generated problems should be happening. It happened yep. in the original Brownstein, which were the inspiration, and, and it's a role playing game. You know, if you're going to have players running NPCs, players need to be presented with problems that they ought to overcome. And, and, they, should be, and they should be commensurate with their rank and power. Yeah. Sure. Right. Um, yeah. Challenges I can that they hear have. hear what the Bro SR has to say about that because I'm sure they're going to have some in, insights. And again, I'm not familiar enough with them. Maybe some of them are doing this. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me let me give you some insights from my experience. I uh, I am or I was. Uh, I haven't done much in a week or two, but I was running a patron for uh, Intralopolis, and uh, essentially it was just a random role in the monster manual for dwarf 
and said, okay, you are playing the chieftain of this dwarf clan. And through the, like Daddy Warpig said, through the random encounter thing, we sort of discovered the problems that uh, that chieftain might have, you know, as an NPC. And of course, once again, going back to the caveat, well, this is an NPC. I don't have a, I don't have a player character's treasure hoard or anything like that. Like, I don't actually know what all of my resources are, but um, it was up to me and the ref to come up with interesting ideas and explanations for that. Um, uh, it does take a little bit of extra work on your part. For example, you know, you roll up another uh, clan of dwarves and uh you know you make your lair check oh looks like i'm not the only one in this mountain right yeah see that's that's fascinating and we're way far afield from atlantaverse in my campaign and i love it that sounds like you've got this wonderful little mini game going on right where you know you're doing this you're you're off to the side doing your own little stuff and and on the one hand it sounds gripping and fascinating hey, i'm going to do some random charts i'm going to run to the people and you're generating all this stuff. But the other hand, you know, I've been running D&D a long time. And I have people that have been coming back to my game for 20, 30 years. I have extensive notes and keep really detailed notes of what I'm doing. It's integral. I cannot imagine having four to five other people doing things like, well, I'm going to stock up all the monsters in this mountain and getting that data in a way that's, where I'm not feeling that I'm missing something, right? And yeah. I, I would be really afraid, and this may just be my own limitation, I'd be really afraid that that would get away from me and pretty soon I wouldn't know what's going on in my own world. I'd have to rely on other people to tell me what's happening. And at that point, I might I would feel like, and again, my this may be my own limitation, I'm not the dungeon master anymore, I'm an observer. And other people are doing these things and pretty soon... And this is, again, 40 years of experience, but I don't think that I can keep that. I don't think the campaign could survive that for more than three, or, three to five years before you basically had eight mini campaigns. And um, I could be wrong. Um, I could be limited in my vision. I could be so focused on the way I've been doing things for years that I can't see beyond that. Um, but there's a rule that I've had for a long time now of when people are trying a new thing, and that's this. It's three rules. Are they having fun? Can other people replicate it? And are they still doing it five years from now? <laughs> so we'll see. I'm looking we'll forward see. to seeing how this plays out. We 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 will see. I I'm excited to see where it goes because well, I've too. learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I think we've all learned a lot. We're we're over an hour, so I want to go right back to Atlantaverse. Let's let's Thank talk you. about these same concepts in superhero games. Um, how, oh, how does how does how does all this work in Atlantaverse? How like how does all this work in a superhero game? Um, all these concepts that work so well in the AD and D system. They work just as fine, and I, and I can explain it very quickly. The the verisimilitude is is actually key by making sure things stay internally consistent. Um, it, it allows players to dip their toe in anywhere, and that's one of the reasons why when my son Nick came to me with his cosmic level hero, Apollo, who is the head of a galaxy-wide secret cabal of spies that have infiltrated every sentient species except for three. 
it fit right in. Um, because it's easy to say, okay, this explains all your conspiracy theories can be true. And there's people that know about them or running them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the strict timekeeping allows you to keep track of who's doing what. But most importantly, and we were just talking about it, is players drive the action. I don't have a plot. And I don't have an arc, right? I've got things going on, and I do a thing in all my games. Here's an example. Inside the Atlantaverse universe is Wasp, which is a supervillain organization akin to Hydra from Marvel. And I had their timelines. Uh, who's doing what inside Wasp? What are their goals? What are they doing about it? How are you going to know about this? What are you going on? I have several examples of this inside the Atlantaverse book of how I do this, of this is going to happen on this day. This is why they're doing it. This is how long this is going to go on. This is what other people are going to see in reference. And by this day, X and Y will have happened and it will end and move on to the next step. If the players notice this, because I put out stuff every week for the Atlantaverse and for champions, I put out everything, something every week for Atlantaverse, for Seaward and for Blackstone and its updates. What your players have heard this week, right? Constantly. And you, if they uh, hear, yeah, and there's a lot of, there's a lot like, of work. Do you put out like fake uh, front pages of the Journal Constitution? I actually, uh, when for Seaward, I just put out what they hear. But for the Atlantaverse, it's this is SNN, the Super News Network, which is basically uh, the CNN of the universe. And they put out, and I put out news bulletins. Yeah, just like that. And they got these news bulletins. And at one point, they completely ignored the reports of UFOs in Bigfoot in Cartersville, Georgia. Blew it off completely. For the three weeks that all these reports of UFOs and Bigfoot were going on in Atlanta, in Cartersville, Georgia, which is northwest of Atlanta in real life, players ignored it. Well, that was actually a crashed uh, anti-gravity vehicle from Black Star, a group of supervillains, and one of their full chassis cyborgs was damaged and they had to come rescue it. If they had followed it in, they would have found out it's not Bigfoot, it's actually a killer bot from the future. But since they blew it off, nothing happened. It just sort of went away, and they didn't get a chance to uh, recover the stolen materials on and on. So the players failed because, in a way, because they didn't follow it up. But there was there was no damage to the world as a whole. On the other hand, they did follow up on the reports of weird things going on at McCollum Airfield, the local regional airport, and ended up having a series of battles with WASP that over the course of eight real-life years led to the destruction of WASP as an organization. And that was because the players are always allowed to decide what they're going to do. I never tell them, hey, today you're going to go here and do this. Never happens. Never happens. They decide where they're going, what they're doing, etc. And by doing that, it, it leads to, in my opinion, better world building and two it leads to their long-term interest is being held. They're playing out their own story. They're not following mine. And more importantly, three, it really ups the emotional investment of everybody, including me. And I think that's the real key to long-term survival of any campaign. Okay. Well, I, I will drink to your continued uh, longevity well, in and out of game. 
And just so you know, all my notes for all my long-term, once a campaign hits 10 years, um, I have my notes up. My oldest son, Jack, already has all my digital notes copied. And he can't, you know, there's a password. So if he wants to, that he has. And all my notes. And he has promised that once I'm dead, he's going to continue Seaward. Oh, wow. Yes. And then my son, Sam, is going to continue Blackstone. And then my son, Nick, is going to continue my Champions game. So we'll see what happens if uh, if I leave this mortal coil before I before I plan to or whatever uh, they uh, will continue these games for as long as they can. So we'll see what happens. That's cool. Uh, there's a million things that I want to talk about, but we should probably wrap. Right, I'm about to say I've got to go. I got to go get stuff on the smoker for dinner. Uh, I love talking to you guys. I I tell you what. I am more than willing to come back in a, in a couple of weeks and we can continue this because there's a lot left to say. Uh, I love it. And and I hope uh, Atlantaverse continues to be a great success. I, I love uh, hearing so about much. that. I really appreciate I, that. I'm going to repeat for everybody uh, listening live who can't read the screen here or listening later, herogames.com is where you can get the book. You can also get it at your usual uh, RPG retailers and even Barnes and Noble. By the time you're hearing this, you can probably get hardcover from Amazon. Yeah, and I, I've even added to Gumroad at the request of certain people who don't like using drive throughs so It's been added to Gumroad too. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, love oh, the chat. Yeah, cool. You guys are great. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Yep. D DW, uh, any last comments or anything? And you know what? I'll just leave, give the show to you. Okay. All right, I want to thanks, uh, thank everybody who uh, joined us live to uh, jump in the chat. Uh, it has been a vibrant and exciting chat today. Um, we want to thank uh, Rick Stump for coming on and joining us on the show. Uh, I think next week is going to be a week for reviews. I am really, really hoping to get out to see Maverick. I have heard very, very good things about Maverick. Um from just about everybody, uh, including all the people who hate it, uh, because they're all people whose hatred I trust. I trust their hatred to point the way to quality movies. So uh, I'm excited. I actually have hope that this will be a good movie. And uh, if it isn't, next week will find me a bitter and broken man. Um, and then I hope to finish um stranger things by next week uh so we can talk about it and probably some other stuff that i am i haven't even begun to think about watching that i'll end up having watched by the time we do next week's show thank everybody uh for listening live we want to thank everybody who will listen later this is geek gab you can catch us just about every saturday 2 p.m eastern 11 a.m pacific on youtube.com slash geek gab that's youtube.com slash geekgab. And you can go to that same URL and catch the show anytime because it is uh, it is archived right there or catch any one of the many, many, many previous shows. All of them are great. And you can read the chat from our amazingly awesome and intelligent audience. We are also available on the Apple iTunes store on soundcloud.com and on the Google Play store. So you can download to the device of your choice or listen live 
on the web because we're here for you in whatever medium you choose. Thanks for listening, folks. We are signing out for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.